episode, nurse practitioner and education specialist Patty Scalzo, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's monthly podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. There has been a substantial increase in the incidence of major depressive disorder in the United States since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Nurse practitioners are key healthcare providers who identify and treat major depressive disorder. On today's podcast, we're joined by nurse practitioners Brayden Kamick and Lisa Anderson to discuss major depressive disorder. Dr. Kamick is an assistant professor of nursing at the University of Pittsburgh, where she coordinates the Psych Mental Health Nurse Practitioner Program. She maintains clinical practice at the VA in Pittsburgh and at Peace of Mind Psychiatry. Dr. Lisa Anderson is an adjunct assistant professor for the School of Nursing at UT Health at San Antonio in the PMHNP-DNP program. She maintains clinical practice at the Family Wellness Center. Dr. Anderson is also a current co-chair of AANP's Psych and Mental Health Specialty Practice Group. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our experts, Dr. Kameg and Dr. Anderson. Thank you so much, Patty, for having us here with AANP today. My name is Brayden Kameg. I am here with Dr. Lisa Anderson. It's really an important topic right now, especially in the context of the COVID pandemic, as Patty mentioned. Um, so we will go over major depressive disorder, evidence-based strategies to improve patient outcomes. To really get an understanding of how to treat major depressive disorder, it's important to have an understanding of the diagnostic criteria. When we think about MDD, what we see is a two-week or longer period where patients might present with a depressed mood or a loss of interest. In fact, one of those two symptoms have to be present to meet the diagnostic criteria. Other symptoms we may see, patients sometimes may notice appetite changes, weight changes that could look like either weight loss or weight gain. Some patients might report that they are struggling with sleep or alternatively sleeping far too much. I've had patients tell me, you know, I'm up all night and then I sleep throughout the day. We also often see psychomotor changes, meaning patients might be moving slowly. Some patients describe this as kind of feeling like they're moving molasses um, or the opposite, they might be revved up. Other things, fatigue, feelings of worthlessness, excessive guilt, problems with concentrating, thoughts of death or suicide. So a total of five symptoms across a two-week period that impact functioning. 
One thing to consider is that patients might not know that they are experiencing depression. So they might present to the primary care clinic with some other sort of chief complaint, like maybe concern about about their weight or fatigue. Um, so it's really important to kind of drill down on whether somebody has noticed a mood change or whether a loved one or family member has noticed a change in their mood. The other thing to think about is risk factors for MDD. So when you're working with patients, who do we see as being high risk? Females, um, non-white um, individuals, people of color, uh, gender or sexually diverse individuals, so lesbian, gay, bisexual persons, transgender or non-binary persons. And then of course we see comorbidities. Patients who present with other mental health problems like anxiety, insomnia, substance use disorders are at elevated risk for MDD, chronic medical conditions. So again, if you're working in primary care and you're seeing somebody with hypertension or hyperlipidemia or heart disease, we know that one third of patients with major depressive disorder have more than three other comorbid medical conditions. And lastly, Adverse childhood experiences are a huge risk factor for the development of mental health problems, including MDD. When we think about adverse childhood experiences, you might hear them called ACEs. I think as providers, we tend to think of child abuse, neglect, which certainly fall under that ACE umbrella, but even more subtle adverse childhood experiences, living with a family member who had a mental health problem or a substance use problem, in those situations, we see this kind of genetic influence in addition to maybe learned behavior. And when you're working uh, with patients with mental health problems, we know that major depressive disorder, you know, really causes a significant burden internationally and across the United States. Every year, more than 44,000 people in the United States die by suicide, and then we see an additional 1.2 million people attempt suicide. And when we're looking at people with major depressive disorder, we see these changes in quality of life, productivity, patients might miss work due to their depressive symptoms. This actually accounts for about $26 billion in lost work productivity annually just in the United States. From a healthcare access perspective, patients with MDD might be more likely to see their outpatient provider. They may be more likely to go to the emergency department or be hospitalized. So with all of this in mind, the burden of major depressive disorder seemed to be really magnified during the COVID-19 pandemic. Prior to 2020, about six and a half percent of people in the United States had symptoms consistent with major depressive disorder. And following the pandemic, that rate increased to about 21 to 30 percent of patients. Lisa, are you able to tell us a little bit more about how to screen patients for major depressive disorder? Absolutely, Brayden. So one of the things that I've seen a lot in my outpatient clinic are the the major depressive disorder symptoms in our youth. So our children and our adolescents, it has be become magnified since the COVID-19 onset. There are lots of screening tools out there that can be used to help providers 
all across uh, the the specialties, whether it be primary care or pediatricians or even in, in psychiatric practices, to help screen for depression. The most common one would be for adults is the PHQ-9. Uh, this tool is a series of nine questions that can be asked uh, to adult patients, usually above 16 and older. But for those that are younger, roughly 12 to 15 years old, there's the PHQ adolescent version that is uh, really appropriate for, and age-specific to them. There's also some other special populations that there are screening tools for. Uh, so for example, for geriatrics, you have the geriatric depression scale that is more sensitive to those that are age 65 years and older. For those uh, nurse practitioners that work in women health and uh, dealing with pregnancy and postpartum people, you do have the Edinburgh postnatal depression scale that has a lot better sensitivity and validity for that particular population. Those that should be screened for major depressive disorder should be done at pretty much any wellness visit out there. So if you have a, a pediatric clinic and you have your children coming in for a physical, the annual wellness visit, screen them. That, that should be a universal screening. Same for adults that are coming in for their, their wellness visit screen them. At least once a year, they should be screened. Everyone should be screened, especially if you are one of those vulnerable populations that Braden had mentioned, you should be screened. So what are some of the red flags? Well, if you have any of the indication in the last uh, section of the PHQ in regards to suicidality, that would absolutely be a red flag. And in those situations, you want to refer out to a psychiatry or if it's very severe, you want to refer the patient out to a psychiatric emergency medical room so they can get a further evaluation. Uh, likewise, if their score is really elevated on no matter what tool that you are using, you probably want to refer them over to a psychiatric provider to get a further um, evaluation so they can make the appropriate choices for their, their depression. Braden, can you tell us a little bit about how you initiate treatment if you have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder? Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. One important thing to keep in mind when you're treating patients with major depressive disorder is the goal is to achieve symptom remission. So what I find is some patients are initiated on medications and they start to do a little bit better and then their dose kind of plateaus, other medication changes aren't made. But when you look at how they're doing, they're not back to baseline. They may be doing better than when they came in, but they, they may not be back to where they were prior to the onset of symptoms. So we want to make sure we're treating not just to improvement, but to actual symptom remission where patients can say their depression is well managed. Before we initiate treatment for major depressive disorder, it's really important to ask about factors that might be contributing to their symptom presentation or that might influence the efficacy of medications, right? So things like substance use. If patients are on other medications, maybe antihypertensives as an example, or certain medications for diabetes. I've seen patients come in and they have some fatigue, they have some just low energy, they might be sleeping more. 
Um, and that could be, you know, driven by some of these medical medications. So doing a really thorough medication reconciliation before initiating treatment. And then talking about things like sleep hygiene, physical activity, healthy diet, getting these sort of lifestyle modifications in order, having and helping patients to develop uh, healthy lifestyle skills and coping behaviors increases the likelihood that medications are going to be effective. I often tell people, you know, we can start an antidepressant, but if you were drinking caffeine in the evening and up all night and then sleeping throughout the day and just feeling really not great, medication is only going to do so much. So we really use medications hand in hand with some other behavioral interventions. Thinking about medications, that's not the only treatment option. So I have plenty of patients that come in and they're interested in, in starting with therapy rather than starting with medications right away. And in a lot of cases, that's okay. First line treatment really can include psychotherapy or pharmacotherapy or a combination of the two. How do we make this decision? through shared decision-making. So having a conversation with patients and learning what are their goals and what is realistic for them. Any sort of mental health treatment, it's, it's really important not to use sort of a cookie cutter approach, but rather individualize our approach to best meet the needs of the patient in front of us. I've had some patients come in and they say, you know, I've done therapy in the past. It only got me so far. I am interested in meds and I want to start meds today. I've had other people who have said, I want to avoid medications at all costs and, and start with therapy. So it's a very individualized choice. When we look at the data, a combination approach does tend to be the most effective when we have a combination of medication management and psychotherapy. There are some cases Perhaps if somebody has really severe depressive symptoms or they're presenting with major depressive disorder with psychotic features, that pharmacotherapy should be uh, initiated a little bit more aggressively. But otherwise, it is perfectly acceptable in a lot of instances to start with psychotherapy if that's what somebody prefers. That said, if they're interested in medications, typically first-line pharmacotherapies include things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the common term for those is SSRIs, or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs. Common side effects, uh, one benefit to these medications is for the most part, side effects are transient, meaning they get better after a week or two weeks. I often tell patients, the first couple weeks that you're on these medications, you might notice a little bit of nausea, a little bit of diarrhea, a mild headache. As your body adjusts to the medications, those symptoms tend to get better. That said, it's important to offer this sort of anticipatory guidance because as you may know, SSRIs and SNRIs do not work right away. They take about four to six weeks for patients to see improvement. So I've had patients come in and they say, you know, I started these medications, I didn't notice any benefit, and I noticed all these adverse effects, so I stopped it. And oftentimes they just did not give the medication enough time to adjust and then see the benefits. One other thing to think about when you're in the primary care setting, if you're working with patients with chronic medical problems, is a lot of these agents, the SSRIs and SNRIs, can be helpful for 
co-occurring conditions. So things like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, an SNRI like duloxetine might be really beneficial for those sorts of patients. Other patients who come in perhaps with more anxiety-related symptoms or OCD-related symptoms might benefit from a medication like sertraline or fluoxetine. Um, patients who are coming in maybe with a history of eating disorders like bulimia, um, fluoxetine is an SSRI that's FDA approved for bulimia. So things to consider looking at the big picture. What are the patient's goals? What other medical or mental health problems might they be presenting with? And how can we really maximize treatment to, to meet a variety of goals? Lisa, would you like to share with us some of the other pharmacotherapy treatment options for MDD? Absolutely, Braden. So there's actually a few different other classes of medications that we can use, one of them being serotonin modulators. These would be medications like bilazidone or bordeoxetine that are pretty relatively newer on the market. And when I say newer, within the last 10 years or so, these medications actually are partial agonists of various serotonin receptors. So they don't give you the same kind of side effects as classic SSRIs or SNRIs do. So these would be really good medications to use on patients that have treatment-resistant depression uh, because of their partial uh, agonism with various serotonin receptors or those that complain of any kind of sexual dysfunction. These two medicines have a very low side effect profile for that and would be a really good option. So keep that in mind when you're looking at treating a young college male who is in a relationship they, and they're really concerned about that sexual dysfunction. You may want to start them with one of these. But you also have a couple other classes, uh, the noradrenogenic and specific serotonergic antidepressants, also known as the NASSA. This one it would be mirtazapine. So you would use this one if you have a patient that has symptoms of depression, such as a significant loss of appetite, uh, weight, weight loss, a lot of weight loss, are not sleeping very well at night, you would use mirtazapine because it would be a very good choice for, for that particular patient. The last class that you may want to consider would be a norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor or an NDRI. This medication is bupropion. Bupropion is pretty unique because it has a lot of FDA indications. So if you have somebody with major depressive disorder that is also looking at smoking cessation, for example, this would be a good one because bupropion is also FDA approved for smoking cessation. Uh, and also for for seasonal affective disorder, this would be a good choice as well. As far as treatment discontinuation, this is something that is a big issue all across the board, no matter what medication you're taking, adherence. So approximately 50% of patients will discontinue therapy within their very first month of treatment. Why do they do this? Well, adverse effects, uh, perceived lack of shared decision-making, or distrust of their provider. 
one really common way that you can help with that change in getting patients to take medications more regularly and becoming more adherent is through a concept called motivational interviewing. Now, motivational interviewing is a patient-centered style of communication that increases patient motivation, confidence, and commitment to change. It is about changing from within, right? And so how do you do motivational interviewing? Well, first of all, just to kind of make sure that everybody is aware of this, you don't have to be trained in motivational interviewing. It's actually a pretty simple technique. You use open-ended questions uh, to draw out patients' experiences and perspectives and ideas, get them engaged in the conversation because you want them to be an active member of their, of their treatment and the treatment team. We want this to be a collaborative approach, right? So focusing on the patient's behavior and what they seem as important. Just because you identify something as a provider that you feel is important to, to change or to medicate, that may not be the same goal as the patient. So to explore the patient's change and explore what they feel is important. Uh, using certain uh, techniques in order to help facilitate communication can be also very important. Uh, again, the open-ended questions, uh, affirmations. And so focusing on a patient's strengths and their positives and what past successes have they used in order to overcome something or to accomplish something, you can use those in order to help with adherence techniques for medication or engage in psychotherapy or anything else that you feel may be important for the, for the treatment plan. Reflective listening is also another a skill with motivational interviewing. This is one where you're maintaining a clear communication by repeating or rephrasing or paraphrasing what a patient has said. So let's say like a, the patient was talking about how rough their sleep has been and they, they tell, tell you that they can't fall asleep, they can't stay asleep, it's just been really rough. You can paraphrase that by reflecting reflective listening and say something like, it sounds like you're struggling most with maintaining your sleep schedule. And that, that shows the patient that you are interested in what they have to say and that you are listening. Lastly, for motivational interviewing, uh, summaries, providing a summary on the conversation that you guys just had really shows the patient that you, you care, okay? So let's say that with part of what Braden was saying is that this is a holistic approach. So medications may be one piece of it, but another piece of it may be physical activity or eating right or something along those lines. And you hear the patient say, well, I don't have time for physical activity. There's no time for that. But you can rephrase that and summarize that by saying something along the lines of, I hear you saying that you have a very depressed mood, but you have no time or motivation for exercise or to get up and do things. Uh, is there anything that you would like to add to that to help me better understand how you're doing and how you're feeling? So this way you guys can come up with a, a a collaborative type approach for treatment and make sure that they're both 
both of you guys are on board with the treatment plan. So, Brayden, what are some of the most common adverse effects of antidepressant therapy and what can be done about it? That's a great question. And that really ties in with motivational interviewing. When we think about motivational interviewing to enhance adherence, one of the biggest issues I see with adherence is the development of adverse effects that patients maybe don't realize will get better with time or don't realize that there are ways to mitigate those adverse effects. So thinking about what this looks like, We've already talked about some of, some of the potential adverse effects that can occur with antidepressants. I had mentioned um, sexual side effects, um, transient side effects like those headaches and GI symptoms. Other things that we might see, weight gain. Typically, most first-line antidepressants, so when we think about the SSRIs and the SNRIs and some of those serotonergic modulators, they tend to be pretty weight neutral. That said, if you have somebody that is concerned about weight gain, recommending lifestyle interventions like Lisa just mentioned, using those motivational interviewing approaches to get some buy-in for those sorts of lifestyle interventions can be helpful. Sometimes we will even switch to a medication that is considered to be more weight neutral. Fluoxetine, sertraline tend to be pretty weight neutral. The serotonin modulator, so bordeoxetine, also tends to be pretty weight neutral. Some medications like mirtazapine, Lisa was mentioning mirtazapine earlier, we actually sometimes use that as an antidepressant to boost people's appetites. So that's an example of something we would avoid if you had a patient who was concerned about weight gain. And I will tell you that is probably one of the number one concerns that I hear patients mention before starting antidepressants. The other big question that I get is sexual dysfunction. A lot of patients maybe have heard or have experienced in the past medications causing sexual dysfunction. So this is something I spend a lot of time providing patients with some education about. Fortunately, for those that have experienced sexual dysfunction, we do have some options. Vortioxetine, as we've already mentioned, tends to be pretty protective from the perspective of sexual dysfunction. We see pretty low rates of sexual side effects with vortioxetine. Other times we can switch to medications like bupropion or mirtazapine. Sometimes we will even augment with those medications in an effort to reduce sexual dysfunction. The next adverse effect that we sometimes see, and it can be one of these either ors. So some patients might experience sedation. Other patients might experience the opposite with this overactivation, hyperactivity, irritability. In my experience, when patients notice either sedation or activation, that is something that tends to get better as they adjust to the medication, although in some instances they may continue to experience these sorts of symptoms. For sedation, typically I, I go through and ask how they're sleeping, are they you know, adhering to sort of sleep hygiene interventions? One other sort of easy fix is if they feel like their medication is causing them to feel fatigued or tired, I'll recommend that they take it at bedtime, and usually that helps lift their energy throughout the day. 
The other thing to consider is switching um, to an extended release formulation. So we know that extended release formulations, they tend to be better tolerated. They peak a little bit more slowly. So this is actually a technique we use to address a variety of adverse effects, but it can sometimes help for people who feel sedated or tired after taking a particular antidepressant. For those people that feel the opposite, who feel that sort of overactivation, sometimes we'll reduce the dose. Um, and then depending on how they're doing, we can slowly titrate back up. If they're having a difficult time sleeping, what I typically do is try to use a medication that's less likely to cause that activation. So medications like escitalopram or citalopram. However, if they're doing well on more of an activating antidepressant, like for example, fluoxetine or sertraline, and they don't want to switch, sometimes I will prescribe medications like trazodone or hydroxazine if sleep is an issue. Another uh, fairly common adverse effect that I find providers are less readily able to identify is antidepressant-related apathy. What this looks like, patients will come in typically after being on an antidepressant for you know, a few months, sometimes even longer, and they come in and they have this sort of flattening, affective blunting. They might feel really poorly motivated. I've had people describe it as an inability to feel joy. They just feel flat. The first thing I do when patients present this way is reduce their dose. And in a lot of instances, that works. If that's ineffective, I will sometimes augment with something that has a little bit more of a dopaminergic action, like bupropion. Um, or sometimes I will consider switching them to a medication that's a little bit less serotonergic. Sometimes I'll switch them from an SSRI to an SNRI. It's really important to keep this potential for antidepressant-related apathy in mind because what I see frequently happens is these patients come in, they say they don't feel joy, they don't feel motivated, and that is identified as a worsening of depression rather than an actual adverse effect from the antidepressant. And then what I see is providers increase the dose, which actually can make those apathetic symptoms worse. And then the other big question that I get from patients when starting antidepressants is, will this be hard to come off of? Should I want to stop in the future? Future Discontinuation syndrome with antidepressants, for the most part, when you look at antidepressants as a whole, it's not always common. Some medications are more likely to cause that discontinuation syndrome than others. What this looks like, patients will describe some flu-like symptoms. I've had patients feel more anxious, or sometimes they will describe brain zaps. Typically, medications that are more likely to cause discontinuation syndrome have a shorter half-life. So if you have a patient who's experienced this in the past or is concerned about experiencing this, using a medication with a little bit of a longer half-life might be helpful. Thinking about this, sometimes patients, you know, don't respond to treatments because of, of adverse effects. Sometimes they may just not respond to the first or second medication that you try. Lisa, are you able to tell us a little bit about patients that don't respond to their treatment? Absolutely, Brayden, and that you just hit on something that's sadly pretty true for a lot of patients with major depressive disorder. This is that 
the vast majority of patients diagnosed with major depression will not achieve full remission with their first treatment. So what do you do in these cases? Well, the very first thing to keep in mind is therapy optimization. Okay, so make sure that you have the, the optimal dose for the medication that you're choosing, waiting enough time to make sure that the medication actually has, ha has enough time to work. And this is very important in, in order to kind of help guide you on what to do when you don't have full remission of the depression symptoms. You also want to evaluate the factors that can impact the effectiveness of antidepressants. So this can be non-adherence, such as we talked about earlier, substance use, or potential for alternative, alternative or additional diagnoses. So let me give you an example of that. So if you have a patient that keeps coming in to see you and they're, they're not seeing any improvement on your depression at all, and they're saying the medication's not working, I don't know what to do, it's just not working, and the very first thing you should ask them is, how many days per week are you taking your medicine? And if they say, well, I'm only taking it three days a week, well, that's a problem, right? And so you need to really work with the patients and actually ask them what factors are going to be holding them back from optimal treatment. You want to screen for substance use. If you suspect that there may be a substance, another substance involved, screen for that. Likewise with diagnoses as well. If you've gone to a couple of treatments and it's just not working, perhaps you need to start from the very beginning and reevaluate that diagnosis. So what do you do if you have patients that do respond partially to antidepressants, but they're not quite there yet, and they're optimized on the antidepressant, they're taking it every day, they're not engaged in any kind of substance use, you have the diagnosis correct, but they're just not there. Well, there's a few strategies that we can use. One of them is augmentation with psychotherapy. So patients that have psychopharmacotherapy alone sometimes don't achieve remission because they need something more. And Brayden has mentioned this uh, in a little bit of her talk, and I have too. It's a holistic approach. And so psychotherapy can really help and the, the pharmacological treatment of medications just in and by itself. It can help promote resilience. It can reduce the risk of relapse. It can help develop positive coping skills. It can really help the patient be empowered and motivated to fully get to that treatment goal of remission. Second strategy that you can use is increasing the dosage. If you don't have an, a, the therapeutic optimal dose yet, but you're kind of there, increase it. And so increase that dosage to the maximum tolerated therapeutic dose. Uh, that's going to be the best possible way to get that optimal response. Thirdly, you can also augment with additional psychopharmacotherapy. Uh, so patients that are at their maximum dosage of the first-line therapy with the partial response, for example, 
we'll say escitalopram 20 milligrams, right? That's the maximum dosage of escitalopram. Well, you can't combine another medication like an SNRI or a tricyclic with that. That's not going to be a good idea because of the serotonin syndrome adverse side effect that comes with that. So perhaps you want to consider a, an additional agent such as bupropion or mirtazapine it, to kind of help out with some of those alternative depressive, depressive symptoms. Again, you want to be very mindful of other uh, life events that the patient is going through. So for example, if they're not sleeping at night, don't do bupropion. But if they're having a hard time with um, sleeping way too much, so hypersomnia, then maybe bupropion would be a good choice. Lastly, another uh, augmentation strategy that you can do to help out with partial responders is just to switch treatment altogether, right? So these are going to be patients that do not have a response at all. You, you've optimized the dose. They're, at the, they're maxed out. They are just not responding at all. So you want to follow the recommended taper schedule for that, for discontinuing the initial antidepressant, and start treatment I would recommend from a new drug class. So if you started off with an SSRI, perhaps switching it to an SNRI, for example. If you need to go beyond that, uh, so maybe augmentation with lithium or antipsychotics or thinking about other uh, medications that are not as common for, anti uh, for, for, for major depressive disorder, you probably want to go ahead and, and refer those patients out to a psychiatric specialist. But Brayden, can you share with us what the next step should be following a treatment adjustment? Yeah, so when we initiate treatment or make adjustments, change medications, it's really important to follow up with the patient regularly over the next 8 to 12 weeks. Monthly check-ins are appropriate if that is, is agreeable to the patient and a feasible option. I have some patients that prefer to check in even a little bit sooner if I'm seeing a young child or maybe on the alternative side of the spectrum, an older adult, I sometimes will check in a little bit more regularly. As I mentioned, we know these medications typically don't become fully effective for about four to six weeks, but over that eight to 12 week period, we could adjust the dose um, and frequently check in to see if their symptoms are improving. If we are not seeing any improvement, that's when we would use some of those strategies that Lisa just mentioned, such as increasing the dose or switching treatment. If you're still not seeing an improvement after about 8 to 12 weeks of second line treatment, it's likely time to consider referring to a psychiatric specialist. So psychiatric specialists can evaluate patients for more aggressive pharmacotherapy, things like antipsychotics or esketamine or even neuromodulation, so transcranial magnetic stimulation. In some cases, maybe even electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Now, there may be some patients who benefit from even earlier referral to psychiatry. If they have really severe depressive symptoms or if they're presenting with psychotic symptoms, if they're having suicidal thoughts without the ability to come up with a safety plan, um, or if they have comorbid psychiatric conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar, <clears throat> 
In some cases, maybe it's difficult to discern if this is major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. If you're not certain, referring them to a psychiatric specialist can be helpful in clarifying the diagnosis. Other things to think about, in some cases, inpatient care should be considered. So if you have patients with major depressive disorder who are presenting with acute safety concerns, they're coming in with suicidal ideation, they have an intent, they have a plan to act on these thoughts, that would be a case to strongly recommend inpatient treatment and even in some cases initiate involuntary treatment if you feel they are not safe to return home. Other patients might come in and they have, you know, maybe a passive death wish or suicidal ideation that they don't have any intent to act on or they don't have a plan to act on. Those patients may benefit from a higher level of care that's not quite a hospitalization. So things like intensive outpatient treatment or a partial hospitalization program might be helpful. So I know we went over quite a bit today, but I hope that this was helpful for people who are seeing patients who are coming in with major depressive symptoms. Um, I had a really nice time this morning and I hope all of you did too. With this, Lisa, do you have anything to add? Well, Brayden, I think uh, we pretty much covered a lot of material when it comes to major depressive disorder with uh, treatments and how to handle certain situations, and it's a lot. So if you're ever treating major depressive disorder and if you're ever in doubt about what treatment option you need to do, what something's not working, somebody's really severe, don't hesitate to refer over to that psychiatric specialist, as Brayden had mentioned. But with that being said, I just want to thank all of you for joining in on this podcast. And we're going to turn this back over to Patty. Thank you for so much for having us today. Well, thank you so much, Lisa and Brayden. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspectives and insights on this extremely important topic. To our listeners, I hope you have found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your national professional association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Don't forget, you can learn more about major depressive disorder and earn continuing education by visiting aanp.org slash cecenter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Thank you for listening.